Welcome to Israel War Briefing, a podcast from the Jewish Chronicle offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. In each episode, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. So today is Tuesday the 12th of December and it's the 66th day of the war Uh, and I welcome today Jason Brodsky who is the policy director of United Against Nuclear Iran, a non-partisan Washington-based NGO formed of policy experts and distinguished former government officials which aims to combat the Iranian threat. He's also a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute's Iran program and his research specialties involve Uh, Iran leadership dynamics, Iran's military and security services, and its proxy and partner network. So a very distinguished expert with me today. Thank you for joining me, uh, Jason. Thanks, Jake. It's great to be with you and the Jewish Chronicle. So let's start with the big picture and the current picture, if you will. Um, Give me a sense of the security scene uh, across the Middle East and further afield with respect to uh, Iran and the conflict in Gaza. There's been a lot of uh, reports in the news of of Houthi strikes on various ships um, in the Red Sea and elsewhere. So just paint us a picture of what's going on right now. Sure. Uh, Well, I think we see as Israel is making progress in its war against Hamas uh, after the atrocities committed on October 7th, that uh, the axis of resistance, which is uh, the Iran's proxy and partner network, uh, has been carefully calibrating its escalation uh, within the region to match uh, the uh, Israeli progress in Gaza. Uh, and uh, that is a very typical modus operandi of the Iranian leadership. They don't go, go all in with uh, one big bang. They gradually escalate. And uh, so that's what we are seeing across multiple theaters. Uh, we're seeing it uh, in uh, Lebanon as well uh, with uh, d- almost daily um, rocket and drone fire uh, against Israel. Uh, we see it uh, in e- Iraq with uh, the uh, also almost daily attacks against U.S. forces there. We see it in Syria, again, with against U.S. forces. And uh, we are also increasingly seeing it uh, coming from Yemen. Uh, with attacks against uh, the maritime sector, uh, with ships that have uh, uh, and some kind of an Israeli nexus, either with an ownership uh, connection or those who have docked in Israeli ports. Uh, and uh, there have also been uh, missiles and drones fired at U.S. Uh, and French warships uh, from Yemen. And that is a serious escalation. So we are seeing Iran gradually test red lines. And my concern is that there is an absence of deterrence uh, in uh, the region and the Iranian leadership is not being made to pay a meaningful price for the destabilization it's wreaking across uh, the Middle East. Right. And it's interesting that in normal times, any one of these events, whether it was an attack on a U.S. base in Iraq, whether it was a Houthi drone or missile uh, attacking a Norwegian steamer in, in, in the Red Sea or whatever, would be front page news, would be a serious destabilizing influence. But because of what's going on in Gaza, everything has suddenly become proportional to that. Um, yeah. Now, it's interesting what you say about um, the Iranian uh, playbook. 
as being a case of gradual escalation and testing boundaries rather than one big bang. Um, perhaps an unfortunate metaphor, but yes. Um, yeah. We've seen that with the nuclear program, haven't we? Where they incrementally push the boundaries and see where they can find a new normal and then push it on a little bit more. Do you feel that's what's going on here with these relatively minor attacks taking place across the region? Yes, I do. I think that uh, what we are seeing is uh, the Iranian leadership uh, trying to uh, engage in uh, combat uh, indirectly uh, with uh, U.S. forces and also Israel uh, that's below the threshold of what would trigger uh, a strike on uh, Iranian territory. And that's what it does. And that's what I say that we have a deterrence problem with the Islamic Republic, meaning that these strikes that uh, it's undertaking uh, in the region are very cheap. Uh, for the Iranian leadership. It's very easy for them to do so because they're deniable. Uh, the U.S. Um, hits back uh, on a handful of occasions, and when it does, it's mostly focusing on uh, empty uh, ammunition depots and other sites that have really no strategic importance for the Iranian leadership. And so it's it's very cheap, these uh, undertakings, and uh, the, this encourages the Supreme Leader and the IRGC to gradually push the envelope. And as you mentioned, we see it on the nuclear file as well. Uh, you know, Iran has made strides and crossed uh, what were thought to be red lines that if you are asking experts a decade ago, uh, many would have said that would, they would have triggered uh, a military strike on Iranian nuclear facilities. For example, 60% uh, enriched uranium, uh, kicking out IR, uh, or severely curtailing IAEA inspections. So, uh, you know, this is all part of that uh, gradual escalation. They play a long game. Right. And it's important to distinguish that between the military doctrine used by Israel, for example, which over the last few years has had a policy of um, of a campaign between the wars, whereby outside of wartime, there have been regular airstrikes, particularly in Syria, to prevent the buildup of Iranian forces there to in, in order to keep a lid on things so that there isn't um, a, a situation where suddenly you're faced with an Iranian army uh, in Syria and you have to fight a real war. So the Israeli uh, policy has been to try to contain and de-escalate, whereas the Iranian policy is trying to push the threshold up and up incrementally until suddenly your threshold meets war. Right. And, you know, I would say this. I think it's very interesting. Uh, if we look at uh, some of the Israeli uh, military doctrine or, or a security doctrine as well, uh, we saw uh, some very uh, sophisticated and significant attacks on Iran proper during the prime ministership of Naftali Bennett. It's called the Octopus Doctrine, and he had spearheaded that. Uh, you know, his his view and thesis, and I think this is largely correct, was that striking the head of the octopus would cause uh, the Iranian leadership to be more risk averse uh, in its uh, campaigns across the region. And so uh, we haven't seen that as much with Bibi Netanyahu in office. And I think that that's an interesting nuance. And, and, and I do think I would like the United States to adopt the octopus doctrine, because if we're just aiming at the tentacles of the Iranian octopus uh, or the Islamic Republic's octopus, uh, that is not going to change the fundamental calculus of uh, the Iranian leadership. Right. And it seems to me as if the uh, American approach, if we can talk about that under Joe Biden, has not just been the opposite of the octopus doctrine. It's been 
feeding the octopus doctrine and feeding it in large wads of cash, as far as I can see. Um, can you talk a little bit about the American program with respect to Iran before October the 7th? What America was trying to do to, quote unquote, de-escalate the situation with Iran? Well, I think that U.S.-Iran policy has been a failure uh, for a long time now. Uh, and let's go back to 2021, when Joe Biden took office. He uh, came in saying that he wanted to return to mutual compliance with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the Iran nuclear deal. And those negotiations dragged out over years. Uh, the Iranians uh, slow rolled the negotiations, were taking advantage of U.S. patience and U.S. willingness to engage. Uh, they uh, made advances in their nuclear program, hardened uh, the program, and hollowed out uh, the terms, really, of the JCPOA, all while the United States was being quite lax in its enforcement of sanctions. And our organization, United Against Nuclear Iran, has calculated that uh, the Iranian leadership since 2021 has earned $80 billion in oil revenue, even while sanctions were on the books due to lax in sanctions enforcement on the part of Washington. Uh, and so uh, that had really undermined U.S. leverage to uh, get to the diplomatic arrangement it wanted with the Islamic Republic. And then um, the JCPOA uh, negotiations really collapsed at the beginning of the woman life freedom uh, revolution uh, in Iran. Uh, and I think that uh, that coupled with the uh, Iran's entry into the war in Ukraine with supplying Russia with drones changed the threat perception of Europe. And the JCPOA just became no longer viable. Uh, reviving it did and it didn't. And so uh, and then the U.S. really turned to what I call a, a de-escalation um, framework. And what I what we mean by that is coming, trying to come up with informal um, understandings, if you will, with the Islamic Republic to de-escalate ahead of the 2024 presidential election in the United States to keep the Iran file off President Biden's desk. And that failed uh, because look at what we're seeing now in the Middle East. And so I think that this just shows you that the United States, and I would also say our European allies as well, lack a transatlantic, durable, comprehensive policy on targeting and combating the Islamic Republic of Iran. It, it, it's mired in assumptions uh, that are faulty and no longer hold with respect to the Islamic Republic, and we do need a reset. Right. And let's look in, in a bit more detail at that de-escalation strategy, which has been dominant from the United States perspective over the past year or so. Um, it's important for listeners and viewers to understand just how um, powerful that that was. Uh, we saw that the most high profile element of it was the hostage deal where a number of U.S. hostages were released from Iran um, uh, at, at a growing rate of something like $1.2 billion a hostage. Yeah. That $6 billion was released from a South Korean um, escrow account, a frozen sanctions account, uh, to the Iranians. But there are also other pots of money in play as well. There was $10 billion in Iraq, as far as I understand it, which now I think has been released to the Iranians, um, and other pots of money in play as well. At the same time, the US has been turning a blind eye to oil exports from Iran, allowing the Iranians to sell a lot to the Chinese 
uh, and make a lot of money that way. All of which that money is not going to the Iranian people. Uh, it, it might be, um, you know, used come with conditions that means that you've got to buy stuff uh, rather than use it to buy arms, but you've got to buy buy actual goods. But then that just frees up resources elsewhere. Um, to what extent has the October the seventh uh, events, if I can use that understatement, um, affected that policy of de-escalation? Do you think? I think it's failed. Uh, I, I think that let's also look at the com one of the components of the de-escalation um, framework that you outlined was that the Islamic Republic would halt uh, attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. That went out the window with October 7th. And so we still, as the U.S. government, haven't ramped up our sanctions enforcement. Uh, we, we, the last energy sanctions enforcement announcement from the Treasury Department was in March 2023. It's now December. So uh, that shows you that we have not really carefully calibrated or, or adjusted, I should say, our policy uh, to match the new reality. Uh, and I know that there's been this informal understanding with the Qataris to uh, put a hold on the $6 billion to not make it accessible uh, to the Islamic Republic. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of confusion over that. Uh, and I know there's a now movement in the Congress to uh, formally uh, put that off limits uh, and, and take that out of the hands of uh, Tehran. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, we have not been able to, as a country, to come to the conclusion that there is never going to be Middle East peace. There's never going to be peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians without dealing with the threat from Iran. And uh, that without uh, changing our posture and changing our policy with respect to that, uh, we're just going to be keeping falling into the, the same traps uh, that we have in the past with uh, Tehran. Right. So that's interesting. So you're saying that the $6 billion in the South Korean account, I, I know it was put on pause after October the 7th, while the administration tried to work out the extent of Iranian involvement in October the 7th. But my understanding was that it has subsequently been released after the Iranians were given a clean bill of health with respect to planning the attacks. Is that correct or is that incorrect? I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. I mean, our understanding uh, is that, uh, you know, and, and the people I speak with on the Hill is that, uh, you know, that their Congress is still trying to make it so that that pot of money is not accessible uh, to uh, the Islamic Republic. So this, but this is what I'm saying. You're, it, there's all this confusion about that arrangement and there's also no accountability. Uh, you know, U.S. officials have not been um, public, have not gone public as to what their goals are with respect to the Islamic Republic. Uh, there has not, the president has not given any speech on Iran. I, you know, I don't think the President Biden likes to speak about Iran. He, he never, rarely does. And when he does, it's only a, you know, a brief moment. He, he speaks about it in one sentence and wants to move on to a different topic. Uh, so, uh, you know, th that is, uh, you know, there's just a lot of confusion with his policy. Uh, and when there's confusion, that breeds conspiracy theories and a toxic dynamic in the Iran conversation in this town. And uh, that is not a healthy uh, policy dynamic, unfortunately. Right. And in fact, I heard from sources here in the UK that the final aim of the de-escalation strategy that Washington has been pursuing was to return Iran to the negotiating table for the JCPOA. 
So with all this money flowing through their system and trust being rebuilt and the de-escalation taking place, then you can go back to that policy, which fell apart years and years ago. Um, I mean, yeah. do, what's going on with this with this dogged determination to try to salvage the JCPOA? Is it just vanity? Is it wanting to erase the memory of the Trump years by putting the Obama years back on track? Do, or do they really think that it's going to work? Or are they out of ideas? <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, first of all, I think it's important to um, distinguish the JCPOA of 2015 with diplomacy writ large with the Islamic Republic. The JCPOA of 2015 is dead. That The text of that agreement no longer holds. The provisions have already started to expire. Uh, so that that is no longer, reviving that, the four corners of that document is not on the table. Right. But the sunset people, clause is already, already upon us, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And so, some people have said that, uh, you know, the the six billion making the six billion accessible to the Islamic Republic and uh, some of these other de-escalatory steps were uh are, were provided uh, a key or uh you know to to a uh, a broader diplomatic opening with the Islamic Republic where we would then sit down with them and uh, you know and and discuss uh, the other issues that we have of a concern most notably the nuclear file it was a considered a gateway uh, to, uh, you know, diplomacy with the Islamic Republic for another JCPOA framework uh, deal uh, where there would be um, sanctions relief in exchange for temporary constraints on Iran's uh, nuclear program. And so, but I agree with you, we keep making these same mistakes uh, with respect to that JCPOA framework. Uh, and, uh, you know, it didn't work uh, in, uh, from in the 2015 deal uh, because for two reasons. Number one is there was no bipartisan consensus in Washington as to what the, an acceptable deal would look like with the Islamic Republic, if there would ever be an acceptable deal with the Islamic Republic. And that was the first issue that um, challenged the JCPOA. And the second issue that challenged the JCPOA is that uh, the uh, full panoply of Iranian destabilization and uh malign behavior uh, on in non-nuclear areas would always put stress on whatever nuclear understanding was uh, inked with uh, Tehran. And so the idea that you could segregate the nuclear file from all these other co different concerns that we have, I think is fanciful and, and expected to last is just fanciful because the, the money that Iran earns from the sanctions relief is going to be used to aggravate these other areas of concern and the US doesn't have any leverage then to tackle them because we're giving sanctions relief for this nuclear uh, deal. So, so this is the, the, the fundamental construct uh, of, the, of the deal is faulty. And so that's why the Trump administration withdrew uh, from it. Right. Well, let's talk about the Trump administration a little bit, because the Trump administration withdrew from it and replaced it with this uh, policy of maximum pressure, which was um, full fat sanctions, um, which really did curtail or wither the uh, tentacles of the octopus, or it began to do that over time. But its critics have said that it did not serve to slow the uh, progress of the nuclear program. In fact, a lot of progress was accelerated during the Trump years, even during maximum pressure. Now we're looking at 
2024 that may see at the end of the year a return of Donald Trump. Um, what's your analysis of of what happened last time with maximum pressure and what may happen if Trump re-enters the White House? Well, I would disagree with the notion that um, Iran made its greatest nuclear strides during the Trump administration. I think Iran made its greatest nuclear strides during the Biden administration. And if you look at the history of uh, the nuclear file, that will uh, bear out. Iran started rapidly expanding its program, uh, specifically uh, enriching to 60 percent advances with uranium metal uh, when the Biden administration was uh, in office. And so the point is that the Trump, um, the Trump uh, doctrine of maximum pressure, didn't actually stop the program. It, it still made rapid progress. Is that yeah? Not- yeah. No. No. I understand that. That uh, right. But but we also have to look at: Did it result in a war? No. Uh, you know. You know. This is this is this was the uh, false dichotomy or the false choice that uh, the Obama administration put out in 2015. It's either this deal or war. Uh, and so I, I don't subscribe to that. Uh, I think that uh, there are other kinds of policies and frameworks that uh, uh, that we can have uh, that uh, based on deterrence that uh, don't necessarily involve a war, uh, particularly given that the Islamic Republic does not want to get in a war with the United States, because if it does, the United States wins. So uh, that is, uh, I think that, you know, that that false choice is was unfortunate simplistic, and only really served Iranian interests, not the United States. Right. And and Trump famously called the Iranian bluff with the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, which, according to the establishment diplomats of the Obama era, that would have filled them with horror and would have meant World War Three. In actual fact, it didn't. Iran wasn't really able to respond. Right. And um, I would add, you know, they had like a, you know, you had at the time, people were saying, this was going to be a Franz Ferdinand moment, likening it to the right. beginning of World War One. I. I mean, it was just the, the rhetoric was hyperbolic and out of control. And the reality was very much uh, very different. Right. And in a way, we're now seeing uh, it seems to me something a little similar, which is that the Israeli progress in Gaza has been rapid and powerful. And people are talking today and yesterday about a possible collapse. It feels like for Hamas, the end may, and I'm saying may, be in sight. And it feels like that is really making Iran and Hezbollah uh, think twice in a similar way to when Trump killed Soleimani. Um, Do you think that that is the case? Or do you think that something else is, is going on in the minds of the Iranians? I think that Israel's campaign in Gaza also sends a message to Hezbollah and Tehran. And that's why it's important to allow Israel the space to uh, carry out and uh, take Hamas out. Uh, It sends a message to the broader axis of resistance that uh, they better not try what Hamas did on October 7th or they're going to be next. And I think that this is especially true with Lebanon uh, and Hezbollah. Uh, and so I do think that they've been deterred uh, from a from getting involved in a in, in a very significant way. Uh, yes, they, they've been firing and gradually escalating, but they have been not trying to open up the northern front full in, in a full manner. Uh, so that that progress from the Israelis in Gaza is also a signal to the broader uh, region. And uh, that's why it's important that Israel uh, continue. Right. And 
And so this brings us really to the most chilling question, um, which is that before October the 7th, a lot of the headlines vis-a-vis Iran were about the progress of its nuclear program. Uh, and I believe the, the latest headline from that period was um, that it was two weeks off the fissile material sufficient for a bomb. Um, since October the 7th, we've had that to think about and the Iranian agitation around the region to contend with. But there's been not one single headline picking up the thread of the progress of their nuclear program. Um, I would have thought that the Iranians are pursuing that at some pace with the benefit of the cover and the distraction to which they are contributing with, via the Houthis and, and, and others in Iraq and elsewhere. Um, what, what do you think about that greater threat that nobody's talking about? Well, I think it, uh, it certainly continues. It's not going away. Uh, Tehran continues to add to its stockpile of 60% uh, uranium, enriched uranium. Uh, and uh, that uh, just goes to show you that I, I think that the reason that they've made all this progress is they have not been able to, they've not been paid a meaningful price for any of their uh, escalation thus far. And that's why I think that it would be important for the United States uh, to uh, really shock the Iranian system out of its complacency and uh, mindset that gradual escalation uh, is acceptable. And the only way that's going to happen is if the United States starts targeting the IRGC on Iranian soil. We have to shock the system out of this, uh, lull them out of this complacency that the Biden administration is just going to sit back and allow them to target our forces because they're afraid of starting another war in the Middle East. And, and, and that you have to reverse that calculation in order to get Tehran to restrain itself uh, in the region. And uh, right now we're not doing that. So it's going to have to take a shock to the system to do just that. So when you say targeting the IRGC and a shock to the system, are you talking about a strike on Iran's nuclear facilities or are you talking about a strike on their military bases or their arms depots or their military okay. infrastructure or, or within Iran? What, what, what does that military, military bases in Iran. Uh, and uh, that would help with deterrence on the nuclear file as well, because it would demonstrate to the Iranian leadership that we not only have the capability to strike, but the will to do so. And that would really reset the deterrence equation uh, with respect to Tehran, in my view. And so that's what I mean. We have to shock them. We have to do something out of character. Uh, and that's what the Trump administration was quite good at. They shocked the Iranians with the Soleimani strike. And that's what I think the Biden administration needs to do. I'm skeptical we'll ever get there, unfortunately. But um, in my view, that's what needs to happen. And if we see Trump returning to the White House, that's much more likely. Well, I think that he's uh, he's unpredictable. So I think that that's you will see a caution from Tehran as to uh, how far it pushes the envelope, much more caution than it than it exhibits today uh, with Trump there. And so, you know, I remember when Nasrallah uh, gave a speech once when Trump was in office and he thought Trump was crazy. So that that perception of, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. president, the madman perception, Mad if you doctrine. Yeah, exactly, is, is you know, actually made uh, the Iranian system and its proxies more risk averse than risk ready as it is under the Biden administration. Right, right. Fascinating. OK, one, just one more um, sure. 
area to talk before I let you let you go, if that's all right, Jason. Um, sure. Uh, it's just about the geopolitical alliances that we see reforming themselves and developing uh, across the region at the moment. Um, October the 7th has changed a lot of things. Uh, before October the 7th, the Saudis were, as we're led to understand, on the verge of signing the Abraham Accords. That, at the very least, has been put on pause. And we saw the Saudis snubbing Rishi Sunak uh, last week in favour of a meeting with Vladimir Putin, um, who, of course, is a key part of this axis uh, of resistance, as you describe it, with China, with Iran um, and North Korea uh, and others. Um, to what extent do you think the world is becoming polarised into an axis and allies, uh, if I can use that metaphor, uh, type um, type arrangement? And to what extent do you think it's still a three-dimensional power game with the UAE, for example, being in the Abraham Accords, but buying oil from Iran and, and so on and so forth? Um, I, I think that there's no doubt that uh, Iran, Russia, China uh, are tightening their uh, partnerships and relations. That, that, that That's absolutely happening, and it's becoming a more lethal and potent threat. Uh, I don't think that uh, Saudi Arabia is going to change its fundamental strategic objective of trying to normalize ties with Israel, even with whatever with what happened on October seventh. I think that that strategic goal remains. Uh, it's been put on hold for now. I think that we've pumped, you know, the Saudis and the Israelis have pumped the brakes because of Gaza. But I think that this, the 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 interests of doing so still remain, uh, and so I think you'll see Saudi continue to hedge. Uh, by uh, trying to, um, you know, solidify the normalization in ties with Iran uh, to prevent um, or, or any uh, at Iranian escalation against Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is focused on Vision 2030 and its economic interests. And uh, the Crown Prince wants to uh, make sure uh, nothing distracts from those goals. And so that's part of why uh, they normalize ties with the Iranians. I don't think that they're under any illusion that they're going to be able to have a rapprochement with uh, Tehran as long as Khamenei uh, is in charge. Uh, you know, because let's remember that in 2016, uh, even before, uh, sorry, even before the Saudis and the Iranians severed relations in 2016, when they had full diplomatic ties in 2011, the Iranians tried to assassinate Saudi Arabia's ambassador at a Georgetown restaurant. So, uh, you know, this relation, these relations are not going to uh, warm anytime soon, but I think that they are just trying to manage them. And I think that that's what the UAE is going to be doing as well, uh, just trying to manage the Iranian problem, uh, uh, because they also have skepticism as to U.S. staying power in the region. Uh, and I think that a lot of incidents over the years have reinforced um, that perception that the U.S. is unreliable, sadly. And this is not just, this is not a partisan um, comment. This is a bipartisan failure, I think. We have not, you know, as the United States has not demonstrated that uh, it will back up its uh, allies and partners always with uh, kinetic action when uh, these interests are threatened. We can go back uh, to the Obama administration when the JCPOA was inked. We can go back to the Trump administration with the SAP, with the uh, Iranian attack on uh, Saudi energy infrastructure and Abkhaz and Kuwait, and there was no U.S. response. Uh, and we can go back to the Biden administration when there have been several Houthi attacks and IRGC attacks against um, uh, U.S. allies and partners in the region and there has not been a U.S. response. So that is why you're seeing Saudi and the UAE hedge. 
Right. So what you're calling for really is imminent and, and decisive strikes on Iranian soil. IRGC targets on Iranian soil. This is not a strike against Iran. It's a strike against the IRGC. Okay, just a final question for you, Jason. Um, uh, the Arab world has been united in calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Do you think there's a single Arab state that really wants a ceasefire in Gaza? I think a lot of the public posturing on this issue from um, some of our uh, allies and partners in the Middle East, I'm talking U.S. allies and partners, uh, is for domestic consumption uh, because their public is very uh, upset with the scenes that they're seeing coming from Gaza. But I don't think that, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, uh, and others would mind Hamas being dislodged uh, from Gaza. Uh, and uh, they won't go. They won't be public about that. But behind the scenes, I think that they would welcome uh, that dynamic. Uh, so uh, I think a lot of the uh, you know rhetoric that we're seeing in the public spaces for domestic consumption uh, because of their publics. I don't really buy these doomsday scenarios that the United States is losing the region and all of these apocalyptic uh, takes. Uh, you know that the United States' reputation and credibility is uh, you know shattered. Please, uh, you know I think that uh, the United States is one of the is a huge. Uh, uh, provides a lot of aid to many of these countries, Jordan uh, in particular, also the Palestinians. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, Hamas is the reason why there are so many casualties in Gaza. They made the decision on October 7th to attack Israel. They are the ones who broke a ceasefire, not Israel. And uh, it is the buck stops with them. And so I'd like to see in some of the calls from our Arab partners that uh, for a humanitarian ceasefire, I'd like to see them say it's time for Hamas to surrender, that they should say in public, but they won't because of their an attempt to manage uh, their domestic political um, dynamics in their countries. Right. I mean, it's been fascinating to me to observe that there have been far bigger demonstrations uh, against Israel in the West than there have been in the Middle East. And it seems to me that there's far more support for Hamas in the West, in Western capitals and certainly on Western campuses than anywhere in the Middle East at all. Yeah, you know, um, an Iranian friend of mine uh, reminded me recently, and I think it's very true, that uh, when we're talking about Hamas and and other kinds of Islamist movements, that uh, the Islamic Republic has more supporters in the West than it does in Iran. And I think <laughs> that that's great. Uh, I think that that holds true with other uh, aspects and things that we're seeing play out in, uh, on TV screens in the West. And I know where you, where you are in the UK, uh, there have been very significant protests. But uh, I think that we have to keep that dynamic in mind. I have no idea whether that's more encouraging or discouraging, but I'm going to go with encouraging. Let's let's finish the podcast on that note. Uh, well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. I'd, remi I'd remind our listeners to the podcast that you can also watch this on YouTube and our YouTube viewers, you can also listen to this on the podcast. Jason Broski, thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be with you. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.